Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. This is a double portion, as everybody's aware. Um, so there was a lot to choose from this time. You might think I, I took the easy road and, and, and picked the fun story, but uh, maybe we can look at it a little bit differently this time. I'm going to be talking about Balaam. Um, and for most people, that immediately conjures up the whole story. We've, we've heard the stories about Balaam and Balak, the talking donkey, the curses that are turned into blessings. Um, but is our view of Balaam accurate? Is it fair? So let's go through the scriptures and we'll find out. Okay. Balaam looks okay at first. Let's go to Numbers 22, 10 through 13. So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go to you. That sounds pretty straightforward, pretty good. We've learned a few things about, from these verses. Balaam, first off, A, he believes he's a prophet of the Lord. He says, when, when, when he says, go back, the Lord has refused me, you'll notice, let's see, if, oh, it's not up there anymore, but uh, Lord should have been capitalized, which means that it's if it's all caps, you know, like that, well, it, it's not in here, but in, in many versions it is because it's the Hebrew there is yod heh right? I mean, it is, he's talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about the Lord, the one Lord, the only God that there is. So he believes that he is talking to God. And he prays to God, and God answers him. He tells the Moabite messengers, the Lord has refused a request. He seems to be obedient to the word of the Lord. He does, however, hire out his services. That seems a little bit hinky, doesn't it? We don't see too many times where we, we, we can see that. It doesn't seem to be God's way. The entire incident also might have been completely avoidable. That's always one of the things that strikes me is this, with this particular, you know, uh, section. If you don't remember, this is at the end of the wandering. The, the, the children of Israel are waiting to go into the land. They're camped. They're not attacking anybody. I mean, they've had to fight some wars. They've won. But they've, they've had to, but they're not attacking Moab. Moab is just afraid. He's worried because they're nearby and he's worried. But instead of going and talking to them, he decides to curse them so that he can defeat them. So 
it, it's an interesting uh, sort of a, of a section. It's an interesting sort of a dialogue, a, a narrative that happens here. So Moab keeps asking Balaam after he refused. He keeps offering him more money. Sometimes he calls it honor. Don't worry, I'll, I'll give you more. Balaam keeps asking God, who eventually gives him permission to go. But, Balaam tell, but tells Balaam when he does, he says, but only speak the words which I speak to you. And while riding on his donkey on the way to meet Balak, this is a story most of us are familiar with, and it's fun in, in one sense to, to, to listen to this. It's an unusual occurrence. First, the angel of the Lord appears. The donkey sees him three times. It, this happens, and the, the donkey keeps trying to get out of the way, and it's driving Balaam crazy. And Balaam eventually starts beating his donkey, and then the donkey starts speaking to Balaam. It says, what are you doing this for? Anyway, it's a fun story. But his eyes are open, and he sees the angel of the Lord. And again, the angel of Hashem, the angel of the God. And we'll read about that in Numbers 22, 34 through 35. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. That's very specific, isn't it? Just say what I tell you to say. No more. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. So as the story progresses, we got a little bit more information, right? The Lord allows Balaam to go to Balak, but he's told only to say what he says to say. We also see the Lord works with people. And I thought this was an interesting idea as I went through it this time. The Lord works with people that are not part of Israel. So often I hear among the believing community, we don't, you know, that all these people haven't heard about the good news of the gospel. I don't think we know that. I mean, I think we know what we know. We know what the Lord has come to, you know, how we've heard about the gospel. I think in our countries, it's, it's widespread. It's very commonly known. But clearly God works with other people. I don't know how, how always he works with them, but he does work with other people. And we see evidence of that from time to time. So, Let's not, I, I don't want to get down to that, that rabbit hole, but, but keep, that, keep that in your mind, right? That, that God does work with people other than, than the believing community or the nation of Israel. He works through the whole world. So let's not try to put God in a box. We don't know all that God is doing. For that point, I do want to at least reinforce it a little bit. Let's look at Psalm 86, 8 through 10. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations, no exceptions, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone, our God. There's not a plethora of gods. There's not different gods in different places. There's one God, and it's him. Okay, so let's get back to the story of Balak and Balaam. Three times, Balak asks Balaam to curse Israel. And three times, Balaam blesses Israel instead. Uh, it is Balaam, interestingly enough, who in Numbers 24, 5 says, Matov 
Lamatavu. How lovely are your, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. This one says lovely. It's a new King James. I prefer the King James. It's goodly in the King James. <laughs> but it's interesting that we actually have liturgy that we sing that reminds us in the, in the synagogues today and throughout all of, all, you know, be, based on some, a word given to a non-Israelite that we have recorded. Now, Balak is angry. Not surprising. He's asked him to curse and he's instead blessed. But he tells Balaam to flee back to his place. I mean, there's clearly a threatening tone at this point in the way he's talking to Balaam. And in verses 12 and 13, Balaam answers Balak. So let's look in Numbers 24, 12 and 13. So Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. So, he then goes on to give a messianic prophecy, beginning in verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So, this chapter, Numbers 24, ends with Balaam returning to his place. At this point, it looks like Balaam stayed true to the command of the Lord. You might think him foolish for meeting with Balak in the first place, but there's nothing to indicate that he said anything but bless Israel. Now, think about this. This is an interesting idea. How do we know what he said? There weren't a whole lot of people up there that liked Israel at that time. Clearly, God had to tell Moshe what he said. But what a blessing that we have the words that he blessed Israel with, God, God's blessing on Israel. But the first chapters of verse 25, however, reveal a problem. Not with Balaam, but with Israel. Let's look at first verses of, of Numbers 25, 1 through 3. Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord, and yes, this is the Lord, was aroused against Israel. Well, this isn't good. It's a sudden downturn in our story. Um, there's still nothing that points to belong, right? If this were our first time reading through these verses and we stopped here, we might believe that Balaam has been unjustly accused by people for so many years. However, let's look a little closer. You know, if it doesn't seem to match up, that seemed like an abrupt change. Let's look a little closer and see if we can resolve the mystery. Because the Bible gives us all the details that we need. As Moses reminds us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever so that we may do all the words of this law. So God gives us everything we need. If we were to quit now, it would look like some teachers who, when they're sharing 
Kepha or Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, they stop after the vision of the sheep being lowered three times. Everybody remembers that, right? It's lowered and there's all sorts of things on spiders, all sorts of animals. And it comes down and says, kill and eat. And and Peter always says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And and think about that. It's been like a decade since the the, uh, resurrection and Kepha is still, still doing exactly what he was doing. And at any rate, that happens three times, and sometimes, and then I've heard many times in error, people stop at that point and say, so you can eat anything you want now because God's called it all clean. If we actually read Acts chapter 10 and 11, what we find that in Acts 10, 34, Peter says the meaning of that vision was that God is not a respecter of persons. So in context, he wanted the gospel preached unto the Gentiles, and this is what Peter is doing. Kepha has gone to Cornelius, and he's spreading the gospel. This was when he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. So let's see if the Bible tells us something more about Balaam. In just a few chapters, back in Numbers, Balaam is mentioned again. In Numbers 31, verse 8, it says, they've just now had a war, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, was also killed with the sword. I will admit that I kind of was taken aback the first time I read that. I thought the last time we saw Balaam, he was headed home, right? I mean, it said he, he, he took, took off and went back home. He's, his home isn't really close by. How did he get killed in this war? says, also in Numbers 31, 16, just a few verses more, it says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Well, now we got some really useful information, and it sounds like Balaam said more than just what the Lord told him to say. Now, we don't have it back there in those verses. We don't know exactly. But he's the one that counseled them of what they could do to get Israel to sin. Now, Israel still had to sin. Still, they're still guilty of their own, their own stuff. But, but Balaam is not clean in this whole deal. So, in retrospect, we're able to see Balaam not only sold his prophetic services... And by the way, he kept ratcheting up the money. You know, when they'd say no, he'd say, not even if you gave me a house full of silver, would I do it? And then the next, or gold. You know, it's just, you know, he he kept trying to bring up the prices. He also keeps asking the Lord, even though Balak already told him that he wants to curse him, and the Lord already told Balaam, you're not going to curse him. They're blessed. I don't want them cursed. They're not blessed. I mean, they're not cursed, rather. They're blessed. So, What they want is completely opposed. There's no way to reconcile that. His behavior on the journey also, if you'll think about it, does not really reflect the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we can read about that, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience, if if long-suffering is not a word you're familiar with, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. So does Balaam appear patient and kind when dealing with his donkey? 
He did not. Was he gentle or did he show self-control? He did not. Hearing what God says, and he did hear what God said. He faithfully gave the words of the Lord. But hearing what God says is not enough. You must want what he wants and you must do what he wants. Right? You know, it's not enough just to hear God. It has to translate. So, in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant, Balaam is also mentioned a few times. And it confirms his sin. In 2 Peter 2.15, we can read, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteous, unrighteousness. So again, it says that he was doing this because he wanted the money. In Revelations 2.14, it's very specific. It says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. It's pretty specific. So when Balak is referenced in the, in the New Covenant, and we can see it in 2 Peter, Let's look at 2 Peter to find out the context in which Balaam is mentioned, right? After all, what happened in Israel back then was for us. I, I know you guys know the verses. Let's, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So they're written for our benefit. I, I've actually... I, I was teaching a Shabbaton one time, and there was a, a particular person there that time that was very frustrated that I was talking about all of these events and these people in Israel. And she says, why do you keep talking about them? Well, it was, the, we were going over the portions, so it was kind of obvious I was going to. But, but, but her argument was, I have nothing to do with those people. I'm like Moses and Joshua. I am not like those people. And I thought, are you? You know, I, I hope that you are. I wish that you were. But I think God is telling us that most of us are going to benefit from this. That's why we have those stories. That's why these things are written down. They're for our benefit. So let's not get, let's be a little bit humble that maybe it's not bad to hear what happened and how God dealt with people in the past. So what is the context that Peter mentions Balaam? At the beginning of chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, we read, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness, covetedness. Well, I'm having trouble with that one. Because they covet, <laughs> uh, they will exploit you with deceptive words. So they're greedy, they're deceptive, and they're going to exploit you. That's who this is written to, the believers. For a, long, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. The Lord's going to deal with them, but they're out there. That's what this chapter was about. It was about false teachers, false prophets. 
So he's telling us that false teachers and prophets are going to bring in destructive heresies in destructive ways. It's not been a surprise for 2,000 years we've known this. And it, and it does happen. We can see it around us. There are false teachers and false prophets. Kepha also tells us they're going to exploit us, as I said. Covetedness we can see. Deceptive words we hope we can see. So let's go to see how Kepha connects this back to Balaam. In 2 Peter 2, 12 through 15. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count, in, count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. you got to love King James and some of the expression, carouse in the daytime. But we know what they mean, don't we? They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in coveted practices and they are accursed children. That's strong language. Accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who love the wages of unrighteousness. So that's, that's where we got to that verse where they mentioned Balaam. Peter's talking in pretty strong language. It seems like he's trying to wake people up a little bit. So Balaam is used as an example of false teachers and false prophet who have forsaken the right way and love wages of unrighteousness. I think that perhaps the reason that we had to look a little closer at what happened with Balaam, it wasn't immediately obvious, is that, isn't that the way it works with false prophets and false teachers? Sometimes when they first say something, it isn't obvious. Sometimes they may seem okay at first, at first. It's only afterwards. And that's why I think that that's, the Lord put it in this way. It had to look a little bit to understand what was going on. When we think of false prophets, of course, we immediately jump to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In, in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak all that I command him. Obviously talking about Yeshua. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word of the Lord has not been spoken when a prophet speaks the name of the Lord? If that thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Makes sense. God knows the beginning, you know, the end from the beginning. If it doesn't come true, there ain't speaking for God. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So from the Brich Hadashah, we know that Yeshua was and is that prophet that Moses mentioned in chapter 18. And Balaam is clearly a prophet. But that definition of prophecy is not the one I want us to focus on. Another definition for prophecy is expounding from the Bible or rightly dividing the word of God. Similar idea, you, you understand what God is conveying and you're, so you're rightly dividing it by giving the proper interpretation. In other words, 
It's teaching. We live in a time of false prophets and false teachers. That's not a question. That's not a supposition. That's told to us in Scripture repeatedly. It was interesting as I went to do this in the Rich Hadashah, several of those things I read related to, 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 to false teachings and false prophets is they said that it was the most common teaching in the new covenant, more than love or, or repentance or anything else. It was, it was watch out for false teachers. I didn't realize that. I, don't, I didn't verify that, but I, they, they, they alleged it in there. I thought that was interesting. So we should not just accept what someone tells us. You should not accept what I'm telling you now without going back and checking it out. If someone prophesies and it doesn't happen, though, stop listening to that person. That's easy. No matter how much you enjoy listening to them, no matter how prophetic other people think that person is, no matter how nice they seem to be, stop listening to them. If someone tells you that there's a different standard for false prophets today, they don't have to be right all the time, remind them that God doesn't change and ask them for the verse that gave this new standard. What they're doing is called ear tickling, and it leads to destruction. It isn't just silly and harmless. It's death, and that's a bad witness. False teaching is a little bit harder or maybe harder to discern. Sometimes we misunderstand somebody. Sometimes what is taught is phrased badly. We may just misunderstand. There may be a misunderstanding. It may be on, on their part. It may be something small. They may correct it the next time that they, we hear them teach. Teachers are going to be held accountable. Scripture tells us that. No one, but no one gets it right all the time except God. That's also true. So how do we discern false teachers? The first one I've got a, I thought of just different, some different points. The first one I'm going to say is scrutinize scrutinize the Bible and what is being taught. Don't just let it flow past you. Scrutinize it. Really look at it. One of the most common things in the, in themes in the Brikadashah is this warning about false doctrine. And Messiah Yeshua taught about it. Rav Shaul taught about it repeatedly. Kepha, Peter, obviously taught about it. We're reading verses that he was teaching. Jude taught about it. So we could have an entire teaching series on on false teachers and false prophets. But there are so many things, ways that that people are to teach something wrong, we couldn't exhaust all the possibilities. You know, one of the the things, I'm an engineer, and one of the things I I tell other guys at work is there are many ways to fail. You you know, you can't focus on, you know, just because it failed this way last time, it may not be, it may be failing for a completely different reason. There's lots of ways to fail. It's a similar notion, if you will, to counterfeit dollars. They don't go and look at all the different ways people counterfeit. They focus on the real dollars so that they know them very well so that they can tell when the counterfeit comes. That's what we need to be doing with Scripture. When somebody tells you something, you should be familiar enough with your Bible that when they say something, it's like, oh, that was a little bit hinky. That was a little bit weird. And then you can go back and look at it. Now, if you've got it all memorized, God bless you. You know, you're, you're ahead of me. But, but you can at least go back and, and study. Okay, in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, let's read that again. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them and will bring, themselves, bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because 
of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. So it does tell us a little bit about them. There's going to be some deception used. Now, again, lots of ways to deceive. And for a long time, their judgment has been idle. Their destruction does not slumber. So we're repeatedly warned to be alert and on guard. Kepha tells us they're going to exploit us with deceptive words. False teachers can be charming. An early example of a false teacher, and I thought this was interesting, I've heard about Arius and the Arian heresy for many, many years, right? Arius, if you have not heard about it, we're talking about third and fourth century time frame. So Arius, credited, not sure that's a good word for it, but he denied the divinity of Yeshua. His teaching was prevalent enough in his day, early 4th century, that his doctrine was a primary topic of the Council of Nicaea in 325 when they established the scriptures as we use them now. I just, um, I mean, it's a very famous, everybody knows of the Council of Nicaea, everybody knows of Arius. His teaching is damnable. Let's not make any mistake about it. But the question you got to ask is, why would anyone listen to him? Right? This is the Wikipedia. This is from the Wikipedia entry on Arius. Although his character had been severely assailed, or has been severely assailed by his opponents, Arius appears to have been a man of personal aesthetic achievement, pure morals, and decided convictions. One of his opponents described him as tall and lean of distinguished appearance and polished address. Women doted on him, charmed by his beautiful manners, touched by his appearance of asceticism. Men were impressed by his aura of intellectual superiority. Though Arius was also accused by his opponents of being too liberal and loose in his theology, engaging in heresy, some historians argue that Arius was actually conservative. And he deplored how that, in his view, Christian theology was being too freely mixed with Greek paganism. We might have liked him. I don't know. But he was clearly so far off the mark that he was preaching against the Messiah. He, he missed the whole thing of God being manifested in the flesh. So we are seduced in so many ways. Don't, don't mistake, don't think that is that guy. I can't be fooled. I've got many personal stories and some of this stuff. I'm not going to get into them. But, uh, but um, everybody thinks they're, they're immune. I will tell you that. Everybody thinks they're immune. But we are seduced in many ways. We are attracted by our eyes. We are charmed by conversation. We see good in one area, and we just translate it mistakenly to another area that they're doing. Arius did a lot of harm. So what do we need to do? We have to test what people say against the Bible. Rav Shaul commends the Bereans. I'm sure you guys remember this verse in Acts 17, 11. It says, these were for more fair-minded. Again, the KJV says, more noble than those in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. I'm not Greek. And they, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So it even tells us why he thought they were doing good. 
He wasn't like, I can't believe they were checking me. He was like, this is such, that's the right thing to do. He was pleased by it. He commended them for it. On the road to Emmaus, and I use this one quite a bit with different people. On the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, right? This is the next day, or this is actually later in the day, the actual day of resurrection when they're on the road to Emmaus. Yeshua meets a couple of disciples. I think one is even his uncle. He tells them that they have a conversation back and forth. And in Luke 24, 27, it tells us, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yeshua, after the resurrection, used scripture, used the Bible to teach. I think that is so interesting. He didn't just say, do you feel good? Do you, when you pray that, does it, feel, does it feel warm? You know, well, that's, it may, but that's not how we make judgments, right? That is not how we do. Yeshua said, go read your Bible. That's how you figure this out. And, of course, we have to look at Rob Shul's guidance to Timothy. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and this is very common, probably everybody has it memorized. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed in some versions and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's important. So the first thing we have to do is we have to really kind of learn and know our Bible. That's going to help us, and that's going to be our saving when they tell us something and we go back and check it out. We have to compare everything to the Bible. We can't just casually read it, though. We have to engage. We have to search. We have to scrutinize the verses until we find the verses that really apply. In a legal sense, we have to find the scriptural precedent for the principles that are being taught. We can't just accept or treat doctrine casually. So that's the first thing. Scrutinize what is being taught and what the scriptures say on that. Second one is listen. Listen. Who do we listen to? We listen to the Spirit. And I'm also going to say, listen to your gut. Sometimes we may not know the difference between the Spirit and our gut. And that's okay. Because both of them are trying to help us. But we need to... <laughs> but uh, when we're being taught, occasionally something will just sound wrong. That's like, as I said, you know, we, we may think, I've never heard it put that way, or I, I don't think that's quite right. Something's a little hinky. We may not recognize it as heresy right off the bat. Don't ignore it. Whether it's the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, or your own mind instinctively recognizing something's amiss, the more familiar we are with the Bible, the more that something that doesn't match will stand out. Sometimes it will take a little effort to reveal the incongruity. If it does match, our anxiety will be relieved. We're like, okay, that was okay, that was sound. You know. But... It may lead you to finally, it may help you understand and clarify why what they're teaching was wrong. And, and then you start realizing really what they were saying and what they were trying to slip in our mind. And God will help you see the truth. I'm going to give you just a, this is a short little example just along this idea. There was somebody who lost their child in an accident. It was a teenage son or young 20s. And somebody... Uh, had the at least poor manners to come up to them and say, it's because you didn't pray enough that they, they, that they were dead. 
well, that's, that doesn't help. That's, that's hurtful. You know, when you hear that kind of thing, why am I saying this to you? Sometimes they, they, they start with a doctrine. Like I've heard people say this doctrine, and this is the same type of thing that was being taught there, is that you're responsible. You bring this stuff upon you when you say something. If you were raped, it's because you said something wrong. What happens when a child is raped? Do you think that brought that on the child? That is a, when you think about it in that context, it's really ugly. It's a really ugly doctrine. But people teach it pretty freely because they don't think about its ugliness in that situation. Let me, let me get back to Scripture because Scripture is safe. Right? 1 John 4, 6. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God wants to help us. God will be trying to, to, but you have to listen to him. You have to pray to him. You have to, you have to know, you have to be sensitive to the spirit. Another example, and this is the last one I gave, I swear on this one, but I was listening to a preacher. This is the one name I'll actually name, Perry Stone. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. So a few years ago, he was kind of, kind of has a redneck style. I kind of thought it was fun, but so I was listening to him and he, and he said, he was teaching about the tribulation. He said, um, at the beginning of the tribulation, Jesus is going to come for his bride, the church. And at the end of the tribulation, God is going to take his bride, the Jews. And I immediately said, what? Is God polygamous? I, I've never heard this, right? This, this, was, this was disturbing to me. It really was. I thought, does he not realize it's one God? Does he think they're two separate gods? And does he think they're two separate churches? There's, there's the Jews and the Gentiles and they're separate churches? That the, there's a separate group of believers? I was really appalled that, that he would say this. The Bible doesn't support that kind of thinking and that kind of doctrine. I don't listen to Perry Stone anymore. And I haven't for a long time. Not that, not that I was a big devotee of him anyway. I mean, but he was, you know, like I said, it was amusing. Well, that isn't amusing when you get that kind of error. It's just too dangerous, right? So the third one, third point I want to say is after you scrutinize the scriptures and what they're teaching, after you listen to the Spirit, stop Stop listening to false prophets and false teachers. When you figure out that they're teaching something false, don't ignore that. Don't pass over it. Don't e just stop listening to them if they're teaching bad stuff. When you find out somebody's teaching it, and it's not just a slip of the tongue, don't listen to them. If it's revealed that they have personal failings, you know, some of them have gross sin in their personal lives, that disqualifies them. Stop listening to them. Not just for a while, not just for, you know, a month or two, just forever. It's corrupting. Again, it's a bad witness. It's dangerous. It will lead you astray. It leads to destruction is what the scripture said. If you want to listen to something, listen to the word of God. It, you can listen to the Bible now on your phone or online for free. And in and, and, and Romans 10, it tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as Rav Shaul reminds us in his letters to the Galatians, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, but if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Again, that word accursed. 
As we have said before, so, say, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any gospel, any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. Now this is not, I'm not talking about fringe or some small minor doctrine or something like that. The gospel, right? I mean, one God. You know, Yeshua came. He, he suffered for our sins. We, he's our only way, our only way to stand approved before God. We have to become his. We have to take advantage of the atonement. We have to repent of our sins. That's the kind of stuff. When people start messing with that or disturbing that or, or confusing that or diminishing that, that's deadly. And, and, and it happens a lot more than you realize, or at least I think you realize, because I was surprised. I'm surprised all the time. And I'm surprised at how much it is going on and how much people are listening to it. Don't rely on your judgment. Don't just listen because they're charming. Don't listen because you think it's better than listening to worldly entertainment. Just don't do it. Stop listening to false prophets and teachers. And the last one I'm going to say is act. Put what God asks us to do into action. You have to put the Bible into action. It's so much harder to learn about anything if you don't try to do it yourself, right? Much of what Yeshua has taught is practical knowledge. Who's your neighbor? Yeshua tells a story, and everybody can figure it out for themselves. On another occasion, just before his passion, Yeshua was teaching with a practical example in John 13, 12 through 16. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So, Earlier in John, Yeshua was teaching also about the doctrine that he preached, the doctrine that he, he was speaking. In John chapter 7, verses 16 through 18, Yeshua answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is of God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no right unrighteousness in him. If you actually are trying to do what God's taught, you understand it so much better. It's much more clear. It, it's, it's a little weak, but I'm going to use it because probably more people are familiar with this. You know, When you're playing a sport, you can read all day long. Let's just use tennis. right? You can read how to do that. You can talk about it. When you actually try to go out and do it, it's not quite as easy as you think. All of a sudden, my, my father loved tennis, so I learned to play tennis so, so I could play against him. Um, and all of a sudden, everybody who was on TV looked so much better. They were like, oh my gosh, that was really hard to do. I know that because I've tried it. You know, when you've tried it, it's actually hard. Same kind of a thing with the scriptures. When you're actually trying to follow them, you say, First time you go through Pesach and you're, you're doing all the, all the things that you're supposed to do and eating unleavened bread. The first day, unleavened bread doesn't seem like that hard. By the end of the week, you're like, man, I miss a sandwich. You know, I miss a, just a regular sandwich. I miss some bread. <laughs> you can still do stuff. You can still eat, but, it, but it's different, right? When you go through it, it teaches you different things. So 
put into action what God has said, and then it becomes more clear what he's asking. You understand more about love. One of the reasons we understand, one of the reasons that they give examples from families is we all have experience with families. It's the way God set up the world, right? We all are in families. And so we understand what it's like to love a child, even when they're not doing everything we want them to do. We understand that even if they want to do things right, even if they love us, when they're young children, they're not going to get everything right, no matter how much they try. I use the examples a lot. It, it's, it's like when people say, well, if you can't do all the, all the commandments, you, you shouldn't do any of them because it's just, you, you're still just as guilty. Maybe you are. But if I ask my kids to clean the house and they say, ah, I found out I didn't have a, something that I needed to clean the one room, so I just said, forget it, not doing any of it. I'm not as happy with that. Practical examples help you understand the Scriptures. It helps you understand what they're talking about. It helps you understand that we, as hard as we try, will never be able to atone for our sins. It's why we need a Savior. The same as our children. We love them in spite of the fact when they fail. That's why the Lord uses the example of a, of a loving father. But he's also our king. The analogies all fail at some point, right? I mean, but they give, us, they give us ways to help to understand. So, let me conclude. Uh, we have been told that false prophets and false teachers, we know that they're here. We know that they're going to be here. So, we need to be on guard. What they teach, and this is, I can't emphasize this enough because I don't think people really think this through, they bring death and destruction. They literally can mean the difference between heaven and hell. People are led astray. Let's read Kepha's warning once more in 2 Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, who bought them and bring, themselves on, bring on themselves swift destruction. And many times will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Maybe that will help you react to that, that you realize they're trying to exploit you. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Their destruction is assured. Don't go down with them, right? Over the years, my, my wife and I have had many conversations with other believers regarding what people teach, whether it's sound or an error. And my wife recommends they take a 30,000-foot view of the issue. Take a step back, see the whole counsel of Scripture without getting bogged down in the details. Many times, false teachers will try to bury you in Scriptures. They just throw Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. You think, my gosh, it must be true. Look at all the Scriptures that are out there. But they're taken out of context. When you go back and read them, you realize it doesn't give any credibility to their argument. It just doesn't. So, when tempting Yeshua in the wilderness, Satan quoted Scripture, trying to get Yeshua to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. We all remember that. What did Yeshua do? He quoted Scripture right back. Because he understood the context and the meaning of the Scriptures being used. We need to be that prepared and that ready. But even if we can't reply without doing a little research first, don't be intimidated just because somebody used the Scripture until you've gone back and read them first in context. Because many times, once you read them in context, it 
you realize it dismantles their whole argument. Their, their argument meant nothing. Another technique my wife uses, and I like this one. This one's quick and easy. If you don't see Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, Yeshua Meshachenu, Yeshua our Messiah, or Rav Shaul or one of the other Shlikim doing something, you shouldn't be doing it. No matter if somebody says, hey, I just, I realize now the scriptures say we're supposed to do this. If nobody else was doing it, I'm not sure that that's what it means. Matter of fact, I'm pretty confident it isn't what it means. Her technique has a basis in the Bible, you see. In his letter to the Philippians, Rav Shul said, Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have, for, uh, have us for a pattern. We're told to follow what they do. We're told to look at their example. And then to the Corinthians, Rav Shul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Messiah. Very short, very succinct. If we know what he's doing, and we do have a lot of information written about it, that's safety. There's safety in that. When we, when we imitate Messiah, we're on solid ground. Don't just accept what you're taught. Look at it closely. Hold it up to the Word of God. Heresy takes us away from God, which is death. So we should choose life. And those are the words I want to leave with you. Choose life. And we'll say a quick prayer, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Albino Mokeno, our Father, our King. Lord, we are grateful to you for the blessings you give us. We're grateful to you for the scriptures that you, that you make available to, to us. We're thankful for the men and the women who lived their lives and, and listened to the Spirit and recorded these words. We're thankful for the faithful example of those saints before us. Lord, we're, we're thankful for all the blessings that you give us. We're thankful to be able to have a congregation to meet and strengthen each other here. Lord, we ask that we be a blessing to our neighbors. Lord, we ask for all these things and we ask for your continued blessings. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.